and welcome to Pieces of History. I'm Colin McGrath. Each week, I'll be delving into some renowned and lesser-known events throughout history. This week, I'll be looking at the early roots of New Amsterdam and how it grew and developed into one of the most important trading areas of the New World. To understand the origins of New Amsterdam, we need to look at the empire that founded it, the Dutch. In the 1600s, the Netherlands was Europe's leading commercial power with interest in shipping, commerce, art, warfare and developments in science. The empire emerged from the Netherlands' struggle against Spanish rule during the 16th century. Seven states joined together under the Union of Utrecht in 1579 and declared their independence with the Act of Abjuration in 1581. The Eighty Years' War followed and was ended with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. Historians have said that it was this struggle with Spain that engineered the economic, social and political expansion in the region during this time. Amsterdam was the focal point of Dutch merchants spreading into the East and West Indies thanks to advances in shipping and the drive to control the profitable trade from the area. From this expansion, two companies were formed for the new found trade routes, the United East India Company and the West India Company. This age of expansion by the Dutch Empire has been coined the Dutch Golden Age as they enjoyed newfound wealth, an explosion in art, scientific discoveries and new territories gained through intrepid explorers. When an empire develops so quickly in such a short space of time, they inevitably gain enemies, and the Dutch encountered one right across the North Sea, England. The English at this time were vying for the lucrative Atlantic trade routes to the New World and recognised that the Dutch were beginning to creep into their waters for land and opportunity. This rivalry will come back later on in our story. The first sighting by Europeans of what would be called New York Harbour today was by an Italian by the name of Giovanni de Fersano in 1524. De Fersano was working on behalf of the French to open up new trade routes in the North Atlantic as they were in direct competition with the Portuguese. The French monarchy, encouraged by merchants and financiers, asked de Fersano to make plans to explore an area between Florida and Terra Nova or Newfoundland with the aim of finding a route to the Pacific after Ferdinand Magellan's successful circumnavigation of the globe in 1522. Four ships set sail for Newfoundland in modern-day Canada, but during the voyage two ships were lost in storms and other two had to return to Brittany. In 1523 they set sail again. The route took them further south, but the waters were dangerous as Spanish and Portuguese ships were known to operate in the area. After stopping off in Madeira, de Fersano and his crew navigated their way to America in January 1524. After seeing land, they made their way north and came across the Lenape people and observed New York Bay and the Hudson River. He sailed further along to Long Island and made contact with the Wamapog and Nesserante people. He returned to France in July 1524. Let's move along to 1609 when a Dutch expedition led by Henry Hudson arrived on the shores of America looking to discover a short route from Europe to Asia through the Northeast Passage. Hudson, an English navigator and explorer, was working for the Dutch on board the Half Moon when strong headwinds forced his crew to change their original route and head further south along the Atlantic seaboard. On this voyage they ventured inland and came across a body of water chartered by Giovanni de Fresano almost 85 years previously. After sailing for about 150 miles or 240 kilometers to the vicinity of what is now Albany, New York, Hudson concluded that the river did not lead to the Pacific. After being unsuccessful in their quest to find the Northeast Passage, Hudson made his way back to Holland and docked at Dartmouth in England on the way back. 
the English government then ordered him and the English members of his crew to cease from further explorations for other countries. His log and papers were sent to Holland where his discoveries were soon made known. It was from this exploration that the Hudson River was named. After Hudson's report stated that there was a good prospect of profitable trading in furs, the Dutch established a trading port called Fort Nassau, later Fort Orange, near today's city of Albany in 1614. This outpost of the Dutch Empire in the New World had a tiny population of 50 traders and soldiers, but the Dutch ships were undeterred and named the region New Netherland, which was run by the Dutch West India Company. In 1625, the company decided that a spit of land on the southern tip of what would be later called Manhattan Island would be the colony's capital and seat of government. With the danger of French and English attacks on the settlement, a fort was built to protect and guard the newly formed town. The company appointed a governor by the name of Peter Minuit to negotiate a purchase of the land from the local Native Americans who lived in the area. The Manhattan people, which is where we get the name of the island today, were peddling goods including beads, brass ornaments, some items of glass and some cloth, all of which seemed a rich treasure to the Indians but were in reality worth just 60 Dutch guilders or $24. Commentators have said that this was the best real estate deal ever struck. After the purchase of the island, Minuit organised a government. He appointed a secretary to the province, a shirt fossil which was a half sheriff, half attorney general position and a customer officer. The governor then appointed an engineer to build a fort in case relations between the settlers and natives led to conflict. This fort, called Fort Amsterdam, was surrounded by cedar stakes and was large enough to house all of the people of the colony. The fort also housed a place for Minuit to live, a warehouse for furs and a mill run by horses and a church. The island of Manhattan was divided into farms, which were called Bowries, which is where we get the modern area of Bowery today. The colony was able to grow in these early years by selling otter, beaver, mink and sealskins and working together with the Native Americans to ensure the survival of the group. The makeup of the colonists in the early years of New Amsterdam contained a variety of people from all over Europe. Many fled religious persecution, war or natural disasters including Jews and French Huguenots. New Amsterdam developed into a diverse and politically varied place to live. The Dutch respect for religious and political freedom was attractive for prospective settlers and it was in this melting pot that women enjoyed legal, civil and economic rights denied back in mainland Europe. Meanwhile the first black slaves arrived in 1628. Slaves played a major role in the building of the colony. After four years the Dutch East India Company decided that the settlement wasn't growing quickly enough so advertised large tracts of land to any man who would make the journey from the Netherlands to New Amsterdam. As part of the deal, anyone who decided to make the journey could bring 50 people with them to make life that bit more comfortable and familiar for themselves. The land on offer was spread all throughout the region, but the land on Manhattan was strictly reserved for the company. There was a hierarchy in place for this transfer of people to the new world. The man in charge of bringing people over was called the Lord of the Manor as he was able to place colonists in farms or as they were otherwise called, manors. The lord of the manor had authority over these new settlers who planted trees, cleared land, planted seeds, gathered or ripened grain and worked with livestock, which was then given to the lord of the manor as rent. The lords of New Amsterdam answered to the governor, but the one thing they could not collect on was furs, as they were too valuable and the company kept these profits for themselves. Unfortunately, after several years, the lords didn't obey their orders in the fur trade and rebelled against the governor. Minuit was even accused of aiding the lords in making money on the side at the expense of the company. After an investigation, Minuit was found guilty of taking money and was then sent back to the Netherlands. 
As New Amsterdam grew, so did the Dutch Empire's grip on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. The territory called New Netherlands now made up the states of New Jersey, New York and Connecticut. The catch-all term for this vast area of land was called the States General of Holland. The Dutch East India Company reported to the States General about the progress made on trade and new settlements in the area. In 1639, New Amsterdam was thriving, but in order to grow the settlement, the company decided to give up their monopoly on the fur trade and open it up for the merchants to trade in the commodity across the Atlantic. Dutch private investors speculated on the trade and many employed locals to help exchange goods manufactured in the Netherlands to sell to the New World. Dutch private investors speculated on the trade and many employed locals to help exchange goods manufactured in the Netherlands to sell in the New World. Trade in foodstuffs increased, with slavery also coming into play between the town and the West Indies. The indigenous merchant community in Manhattan pressurised the States General of the Netherlands for a government like those which existed back in the Netherlands. It wasn't until 1647 that one of the most famous residents of New Amsterdam arrived on her shores, a new director general by the name of Peter Suzevant. He arrived to great fanfare in May of that year as a large crowd appeared at the shore to welcome him. He walked up to the fort and proclaimed, quote, I shall govern you as a father does his children. End quote. This was the start of a new era for the colony. Suzevant walked up with a wooden leg as he had it shot off in battle while he was in the service of the West India Company. He was strict, quick tempered, and wasn't someone to mess with. He was strong minded and he didn't listen to advisors. Reports say that he was a strong minded Calvinist, hostile to Quakers, Lutherans, and all other species of Protestants and tried to have Jews and all those who did not belong to the Dutch Reformed Church banned from the colony, but the company resisted and overruled him. It could be from this religious conviction that one of his first laws passed was the banning of the sale of alcohol on Sunday before 2pm and every day after 8, and he enforced strict penalties for drawing a knife or sword in anger. But he was well liked, and he made it his mission to make the lives of the citizens of New Amsterdam as happy as possible. His first job was to clean up the town so hog pens were removed from the front of houses, fences were repaired, weeds were cleared and replaced by gardens and generally improved the lives of residents. New laws were imposed on citizens such as the banning of maypoles or shooting guns on New Year's Eve, pigs and goats were prohibited from climbing on Fort Amsterdam's wall and pricing regulation on bread was introduced. After a period of time with Suzevant at the helm, officers were appointed to oversee trials and a mirror was installed. These local government officials overseen the introduction of ordinances such as fire codes, sanitation and health codes, zoning laws, building codes and appointed fire inspectors and city surveyors. It was decided that the town had got so big that a city hall was needed to house all of these officials. New Amsterdam was granted city status. In 1652, England and the Netherlands went to war. Susevant, now in his fifth year in charge of the newly formed city, worried that the English would attack from New England on the northern borders of their colony. Fortifications were built to protect the people from a possible invasion. The fort was repaired and strengthened. A wall was built from the Hudson River on the west of Manhattan to the East River on the other side of the city. Citizens mounted guard posts and preparations were put in place for an attack. Fortunately, the attack never came and nothing happened for three years until Swedish settlers began to build houses on Dutch lands. Susevant, with 160 men and seven ships, sailed around to the Delaware River and conquered the Swedes. Relations with the local Native Americans during this period were peaceful until one colonist killed a native. From this, there was an uprising of local tribes in response to the killing. In New Jersey and on Staten Island they murdered colonists, 
burned houses and laid farms to waste. Sousaphon returned to sue for peace and he was able to smooth over the hostilities by giving gifts and guaranteeing that this was a one-off incident. The city was flourishing by 1652. The population of just over 1,000 people ensured that the city was an important trading post for the company. Farms were churning out the crops and livestock not only needed to feed the local community but they were sending harvests back to the old world. Roads were built to transfer the crops from the land to the ships. The wall built to protect the city from the English was turned into a street. We know this today as Wall Street. The city was beginning to expand into other areas outside of Manhattan because in 1658 farmers built a village they called New Harlem after a town in Holland. This new town on the fringes of the city became a fashionable place for merchants to build country houses. In 1661 Staten Island was settled for the first time. It was during this period under the stewardship of Peter Sousavant that the city and province as a whole flourished. During the beginning of the 1660s the English were beginning to make their presence felt on the Atlantic trade routes and had an eye trained on the profitable settlements that the Dutch made on the eastern seaboard. They had been building up their own territories in the New World with the founding of Virginia and New England and with English settlers branching out as far as Long Island. In 1664, Charles II decided that the English had a strong claim to land settled by the Dutch from an expedition from John Cabot, who in 1497 claimed to discover the coast of North America under the commission of Henry VII of England. Charles II decided that this claim was just and gave the new Netherlands region to his brother James, Duke of York. The Duke of York then sent four ships to take the area back from the Dutch. Accounts vary but in either late August or early September 1664, a commander by the name of Richard Nichols arrived in the waters of New Amsterdam with warships carrying 300 or possibly 450 English soldiers. Nichols sent a letter to Sussevent demanding New Amsterdam surrender and promising to protect the lives, property and freedoms of all who accepted English rule. Sussevent stood firm, ripped up the letter and claimed, quote, I'd rather be carried out dead, end quote. The merchants of the city and his own son implored him to accept the terms of the letter for the sake of the future of the city. Dennis J. Macca, scholar at the New Netherlands Institute in Albany, states, quote, Members of Manhattan's merchant community turned a potential disaster into a guarantee of commercial and political security and may have endured a brighter future than what they might have envisioned under the Dutch. End quote. Nichols then took over as Governor-General of New Netherland. The transfer of power from the Dutch to the English had happened without a bullet being fired. On the morning of September 8th, 1664, Peter Sassevant, with his head bowed, marched at the head of his soldiers out of Fort Amsterdam with flags flying and drums beating. The English, on the other hand, walked the other way with their flags flying and drums beating into their new city. It was on this date that New Amsterdam became New York and the province of New Netherland became the province of New York. Nichols ruled New York for three years before growing tired of the new country and requested to be relieved. The new Governor-General appointed was a man by the name of Francis Lovelace. Lovelace was a different character to Nichols, who was well liked and respected by the citizens of New York and that he was a man of harsh manner and ensured that everyone knew that he was in charge. When suggestions were put to Lovelace about the running of the city, he quickly shut these down and he said that he should be left to the governing. He did have a few positives though. He introduced the first mail service to Boston from New York. He also introduced a weekly meeting of merchants at a bridge which crossed Broad Street at the present exchange place. The bridge has now gone, but this was the original point for what would now become the financial district of the city. 
1673, the Dutch decided that they should retake their old territory from the English. The news came through to the English in New York, and so they prepared the city for the possible conflict. Fortunately for the citizens of the city, the Dutch took so long to get to New York, the preparations for war were given up. The Dutch did finally arrive in July of 1673. Governor Lovelace was in a distant part of the colony at the time, and the city had been left under the care of Captain John Manning. Manning was privy to information that not many people knew. There was no hope of defending the city as they were not prepared. He sent two messengers, one to Lovelace to inform him that the Dutch had arrived in the waters outside the city, and another to the Dutch asking them what their intentions were. The Dutch simply replied that the city must be surrendered to them that same day. To reinforce this message, the Dutch Admiral dispatched one of his captains, Anthony Clove, who landed with 600 men. The Dutch captain agreed that if the English left the fort without a show of resistance, they could do so with honours of war and without intrusion, much like the Dutch faced nine years previously. In a repeat of events of 1664, the English marched out of the fort and the Dutch marched in. Captain Manning was blamed by Charles II for the loss of New York. Captain Cove took charge and went about reverting the provinces to New Netherlands and the city was renamed New Orange. But why New Orange? The Prince of Holland, who would go on to marry a daughter of the Duke of York, who in the future would become King of England under the title of William III, descended from the House of Orange. Several improvements to the city were made, including repairs to the city wall, soldiers were on standby from dawn to dusk, and the city gates were locked at night so nobody could come in or out. In 1674, the Dutch and English settled their differences after the Third Anglo-Dutch War. The fallout from this treaty was the handing over of New Orleans and New Netherland back to the English. Dutch soldiers left the island and the English installed their own government in the region. But what did the Dutch get from this treaty? They were offered sugar-rich Suriname, a country on the northeastern coast of South America beside modern-day Guyana and French Guyana. New York continued to prosper with the English in charge. The city itself went from strength to strength and in 1686 it became the first city in the colonies to receive a royal charter. Nothing much changed in the city with the transition from one part to another as Kenneth T. Jackson writes, quote, The names, the court system and the language changed, but the tolerance, aspirational spirit, geography and diversity remained the same. End quote. The binding of the Dutch and English empires into the founding of modern New York engraved values that we associate with the city as Russell Shoto commentated. Quote, the Dutch brought their pragmatic tolerance and their aggressive free trading sensibility. Those two forces got fused into the bedrock of Manhattan Island. When the English took over, they saw that the island was functioning like no other place in North America, so they kept things more or less intact. End quote. Before we finish off, I'd like to give a mention to Peter Sazavant. The last we had heard of him was walking out of the city, head bowed, marching his defeated soldiers out of Fort Amsterdam in 1664. Suzevant ended up going back to the Netherlands to explain why he had surrendered the region to the English, but he came back again and returned to New York where he spent his remaining years quietly at his farm. He died in 1672 and was buried in St Mark's Church where you can visit today and see a tablet which tells you that the body of the last Dutch governor lies there. His name survives in the city today with several streets named after him including Suzevant Street, Suzevant Square and the Bedford Suzevant area in Brooklyn. Thanks for joining me on this journey through the history of New Amsterdam. I hope you enjoyed it. Some of the sources that I used for this episode include New York City Department of Records and Information Services, Kenneth T. Jackson for the Encyclopedia of New York City, Russell Shorto, 
author of The Island at the Center of the World, a New Amsterdam History Center. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colin McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.